Father, I thank you for my brother Mark. I thank you for the heart you put on him, Lord. Being so young, Lord, I don't think that I had that much thought about you that he does. And I just thank you for that. You have put a position in his heart, Lord, where he just wants to serve you. He wants to be good for you, Lord, and he wants to bring others to you. And I pray that even in his youthfulness, Lord, you would just bolster him up and you would give him a boldness that he's never experienced before so that he would go out and teach your commandments to all those around the world, Lord, that don't know you. Thank you for the circle that he influences now, and I pray that you continue to increase his territory, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. All right, good morning. Um, just want to say first off, thank you everyone who, uh, when our, my grandpa passed away a couple weeks ago, everyone who supported us and came to the funeral it was really, really a great service. Mark Miller did it for us, and we're so grateful for that, but it was really cool just to hear some of the stories they had shared. Uh, one of my favorite um, being that, uh, you know, grandpa was a concrete man. He worked into his, like, early 80s, I think, and, uh, and it was very much like a fly by the seat of your pants kind of thing. That's just kind of the way he did life. And so Rick Dyke, who was a longtime uh, friend of our family, was, uh, was coming back from the mission field and, and uh, working for Grandpa in the summer because he would train anybody, he'd work with anybody. And, uh, and I guess it was Rick's daughter's birthday that day. And so Rick went in, he's like, hey, I'm going to need a half day today. And uh, he didn't know that was Grandpa's birthday too. And so Grandpa was just like, it's my birthday too, get back to work. And that's just kind of the attitude he had. <laughs> Funny guy. And... Uh, so yeah, it was just really good to hear those stories, and thank you all for that. So um, today, you know, a lot of times when uh, when you're asked to preach or something, you hope that someone gives you like a a scripture. At least I do, because that's a little bit easier to know what you're going to share from. But if someone just tells you to share something, it's a little bit hard. And so I was wrestling what to share with, and uh, I I read a book. This tissue is going to distract me. Here, put that in my pocket. Um, a couple weeks ago. Um, I was reading this book called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. Really good book. I highly recommend it. But that book, um, at that time when I was thinking about what I want to talk about, deeply impacted me. And so I highly recommend it. And a lot of the um, thoughts that I'm going to share with you today are coming from that. So I want to start with a quote today by A.W. Tozer. It says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I personally believe this to be true because we are all moving toward our image of God. So, for example, if I believe God to be mean-spirited and manipulative, then I'll live walking on eggshells. But if I think that he's just a jolly old man in the sky and isn't really concerned about my day-to-day -day affairs, but it just is kind of passive, then, I, then I'll live... Um, thinking that there's no real responsibility. And so our view of God is deeply important in the way that we want to see him. We want to see him correctly. And I personally believe that, that the enemy, because we have an enemy in this world, that we, we see the, the works of the enemy in physical things, which I think those, they are, of course. But I believe that the enemy's number one tactic to keep us separated from God is to distort our image of God, to think of him differently than he actually is. And this is what he did in the beginning with Adam and Eve says that God made everything perfect, good, the way it was intended to be, uh, heaven on earth. Everything, he said, it's very good. And God had created man and woman. He said, hey, everything's good. I just have one thing I don't want you to do. He says, uh, see that tree over there? He says, just don't, I was thinking about it. Watch out for that tree. 
Jungle Book, or uh, Tarzan, watch out for that tree. So don't eat from that tree. That's the one thing he told them to do, or not to do. And so the serpent came in, and of course they had perfect relationship with God. They saw him clearly. They understood who he was. And then the enemy came in, and he, he did three things, uh, three things that he still does today. First, he gets us to doubt God's word. So did God really say? Did God really say that about himself in our context? Did God really say you shouldn't eat from that tree? And number two, he gets us to doubt God's truthfulness. He says, uh, you surely not die. In other words, what God has to say can't be trusted. And then third, and this is kind of the knockout punch, for God surely knows. For God really knows. So he's, that's to get us to doubt his heart. So what he's saying is that you can't completely trust God. That he says he's light, but there's some darkness to him. That you can't completely trust his heart toward you, that it's good, and that he's holding out on you. And this is what the enemy does to try to distort our image of God. Because our minds, separated from God, before Christ, are naturally at war with him. It says in Romans chapter 8 that the mind separated from Christ is, is enmity against him. Meaning that we're building a case against God and accusing God of all these things. That God doesn't understand this. God doesn't get this. And so we're building a case like how we do if you're in those meditative states of your day. When you're uh, in the shower, or doing the laundry, or driving in your car and you're thinking like, Oh, I should have said that. I should have said that. Oh, that would have gone. Right? We're, we're creating a case. And it says that before Christ, that this is what we're doing in our hearts toward God. It says in Colossians 1 that we were enemies in mind against God. So we, we, we have what, I, what uh, Dane Ortland, the author of this book, calls dark thoughts, dark thoughts of God. And I have found that these dark thoughts that we have about God and about his nature come in dark moments. So maybe a loved one passes away before we think it's time. And so we think, well, God just doesn't care. God doesn't care about, any, care about my family or anything like that. Or maybe you're waiting for God to fulfill a promise, and he hasn't done it yet. And so you think, well, I'm invisible, and God doesn't see me anymore. And it's these dark moments, or maybe you're caught in sin, habitual sin, and you think, well, God just has left me, and he's not interested, and he's looking on me with a frowning face now because of these mistakes that I continually make over and over again. And it's these dark moments that cause these dark thoughts to come in our mind about God. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves is, are these things true? Are these thoughts that we have about God true? Because it's, it's, underst it's understood that we can be wrong about reality. Just talk to any Michigan fan, and you'll find someone who's wrong about reality. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I, Brenda was the only one I was going to offend with that, I think. But. <laughs> or talk, I think we can all agree. Uh, someone who puts in the milk before the cereal. Someone who's wrong about reality and the way things should be. <laughs> talk to those kind of people, right? You can be wrong about reality. So forever we believed that the, uh, uh, the earth, you know, the sun revolved around the earth. And we found that to not be the case. So we can be wrong about reality. And so we need to ask ourselves, are we wrong about the reality of God and of his heart toward us? Um, because right after Adam and, Eve, Adam and Eve had sinned and caused the fall of man, um, it says that God made a promise. And he says, I'm going to send my son who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And with crushing the head of the serpent, he was going to crush the mouth 
that had lied to us about who God really is and to destroy that. In 1 John 3, 8, it says that the Son of Man was manifested to destroy the works of the evil one. And typically when we think about that, we think of like the things that we see, wars and disease and all these things, which are true. But I believe primarily what Jesus came to destroy was our misconceptions about who God was. Dane Ortland says, perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that caused you to go there in the first place and keep you cool toward him in the wake of it. I'll read that again. Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that caused you to go there in the first place and keep you cool toward him in the wake of it. Maybe the real enemy that we're dealing with is not this sin in which we struggle, but maybe the deeper issue is we have a misunderstanding of the heart of God that's keeping us from moving toward him and and making us move away from him. And then Jesus comes on the scene to, to show us who God really is. He says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. In order to understand the Father, to understand God, we need to understand Christ because the two are not in opposition, they are the same. And so if we understand Christ's heart, we understand God's heart. And there's only one place in the four Gospels where Jesus says what his heart is. Now, of course, we see his heart on display. You see that in the way, in the miracles he does, in the way he treats people, treats weak people, treats people who are struggling. We see that. But there's only one place from his own lips where he says what's on his heart, what his heart is like. And it's in, but in the context of what he's saying, when he's talking about his heart, his heart toward what? Because it, it doesn't do us much good if we know his heart toward perfect people. Because we get that. We know that. We know, well, if I'm good, then I'm, I deserve to receive love. But what is his heart toward people? People like you and me. People who have relationships, who have jobs, who have responsibilities, that have struggles, that are weighed down and wearied by life. What is his heart toward us as people, normal people, people who deal with stuff? What is his heart toward us? And it said in Matthew chapter 11, 28 through 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Gentle and lowly. These are the words that Jesus uses to describe his heart. And what does he say? Toward perfect people? Is his heart gentle and lowly? No. Toward people who are weary and heavy laden. People who don't have it all together. Who are dealing with stuff in their everyday life. And so first I want to say, what does, what does he mean by heart? When he's saying, uh, I'm g- uh, gentle and lowly in heart, what's he talking about? Now, we, we know that the, when the Bible's talking about the heart, it's not just talking about the emotional uh, things that we deal with. Although that's part of it. What he's saying is that, The heart is like the engine behind your life. It's the why behind everything you do. So when Jesus is saying that he's gentle and lowly in heart, he's saying that this is who I am in my bones. That this is who I am on the innermost being. This is the thing that is driving. And this is why in Proverbs it says, guard your heart above all else because from it flow the issues of life. So if I I have a healthy heart, I'll have a healthy life. Because this is the engine that's driving all of my life. And so Jesus says, I am gentle and I am lowly in heart. And that's the way he uses to describe himself. Are these, are these two words, 
are these what come into our mind when we think about Jesus? Are these the first two words? Because he could have used any two words. He could have said, I'm joyful and generous, which, of course, we know he is. He is those things. He could have said, I'm mighty and powerful. He doesn't say that. He says, I am gentle and lowly. That's who he is. And uh, I want to talk about these two words really quick, gentle and lowly. And, of course, we'll I'll explain more. But the Greek word for gentle is the word protis. And uh, I, I'm thankful JC a couple weeks ago was sharing in youth group, and she reminded me of this. Uh, this Greek word is the word that was used. It, it's used in Matthew 5, 5 to talk about the meek will inherit the earth. And when we think of meekness, we think of weakness. That's just the way our culture is. But the word here is the same word that was used for when they, the Greek empire would go out and tame stallions to become war horses, that they were meek, that they were, it was strength under control. And this is who Jesus is. It, and so when he's saying that I'm gentle in heart, it's not because he can't be anything else, because he has the option to be something else. But he says, I am gentle. I'm strength under control. I'm gentle for your sake. That's what he's saying. Like in Philippians 2, it says, um, where's the scripture? Nice. Came down. Why am I blanking on Philippians 2? I know this scripture. Oh, yeah. For he himself, he did not think that equality was of God was something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. So in other words, equality with God was something to be grasped, something to be reached for. Jesus could have reached for it. But he didn't. They came and tried to make him king. And I believe in, in John's gospel. They, they come and they try to make him king because he's doing all these things and everyone's amazed. But he rejects it because he knows that the path that his father has made for him is through the cross. And so Jesus is gentle, not because he has to be, but because he wants to be. He is gentle in heart. And then I preached about a year ago on John 18 where they come, uh, the people to arrest Jesus in the garden. And they say, where is Jesus of Nazareth? And then he just says three words, I am he. And they all fall back and draw to the ground. They all fall, fall down. And that is strength under control. He says, do you not think I could call on legions of angels in this moment and deliver myself? He says, no, but for your sake, I need to do this. And this is who Jesus is. He's gentle in heart. Uh, Hebrews uh, 4.15, NLT. It says, this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. For he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. And that's talking about Jesus. When it's saying this high priest of ours, Jesus understands our weaknesses. He understands everything that we go through. He can relate to us in every way, yet without sin. In deeply human experiences that we think that God has no place knowing, Jesus understands because he is man. He never put off flesh. Once he resurrected, he never says that he, he lives in a glorified body today. And these deeply human experiences that we have, a couple, uh, like two months ago, I think it was right after I broke my ankle, I was laying in, I was laying in bed, and uh, my dog Chance uh, sleeps in the room with me, and uh, it's like two or three in the middle of the night, and uh, of course it's like my ankle's broken, I'm not getting up for anything. And so I, I hear that dreaded sound, and Chance starts to you know, with a dog mason, they're getting ready to throw up. And so I'm like, oh, gosh. Like, it's 3 in the morning. I'm not getting up. I'm too tired. He's just going to have to do it, and I'll clean it up in the morning. I'm not getting up. And so I go, to check, I go to see where he throw up. And out of, I don't know how many square footage in my room, he decided to throw up 
on my five and a half by two and a half iPhone sitting on the floor. <laughs> the only thing, he could have thrown up anywhere else, and that's where he decided to do it, so. Mm. Checks out. So these deeply human experiences that we share, the messy things of life, Jesus understands our humanity. He understands the things that we go through, the deeply human experiences, whatever it be for you. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 5, and, he, and this is talking about Jesus, our high priest, and he is able to deal gently with ignorant and wayward people, to deal gently, because he himself is, beset, is subject to the same weakness. And he is able to deal gently with ignorant and wayward people because he himself is subjected to the same weaknesses. So like I said, Jesus lived in a physical body like ours. He didn't float from place to place. He, he understands what it is to be hungry, to be thirsty, to be tired, to be you name it. He understands a physical body. And this is what can make him our high priest because he understands our weaknesses because he himself was beset with weakness in a physical body. Now, of course, in every way, yet without sin. And the way, you don't really see this much in the life of Jesus because he's so full of the Spirit and walking by the Spirit, but the, the moment we see it is when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the weight of the world is coming upon his shoulders, and it's in that moment that the Father turns away, and, and Jesus in that moment is left to, to do this, to, to go to the cross. And he says, Father, is there another way? Can we do this another way? Weakness. He's beset with weakness. But of course, he, he decides to go the way of the cross, and then an angel appears and strengthens him. He was tested in every way we are, yet without sin. And he can relate to us in every way. He knows what it is to feel the way we do. Um, again, a, a couple, um, I think it was a couple years ago, uh, our family had gone to Oregon, and we, uh, we were going whitewater rafting, and it was uh, southern Oregon, beautiful. I think the, na the, the name of the town was Medford, Oregon. I just remember it was the town that Toby McGuire was from. That's the only thing I can think of, but, uh, but I think it was the Rogue River, and so, of course, never being from there, not being familiar with Oregon, we went to this town, and, um, and we signed up for I don't know, some uh, whitewater rafting service. So this guy was from the area. He and his daughter picked us up in the van uh, with a couple other people and taking us to, to, uh, to the river to get in or whatever. So uh, we had trust in them because he had been there before and he knew what he was doing. And even when we were on the river, we're like, even though we had never done it before, we had faith and confidence that because he had done it before and he had experience that we were going to be okay. And so uh, we went over this small little a waterfall, I guess, and he's like, keep rowing, keep rowing, and so I'm like, okay, I'm rowing, I'm still rowing, we're 45 degrees now, I'm still rowing, and then we hit, and then I'm the only one that gets sucked out, and I just remember it says to put your uh, toes above the water, so that's what, I did, that's what I did, and they had to pull me back up, so that was my traumatic experience, I survived though, but, but to say that is that Hebrew says that Jesus is our forerunner, that he has gone before us in every way. That he, he, because he has shared these human experiences, because he has gone before us, we can have faith and trust in him because he knows what it is to deal with these things that we deal with as human. And so therefore, he's able to come alongside and to help us because he's the forerunner. He's the one that understands everything, the way human relationship work. 
And so he's able to help us. He's the most understanding and helpful person in the universe. And in the same way how you can understand a map, right, we can, you can look at the map of life and just the way we could have looked at that map in Oregon to kind of understand the way that this river is supposed to go, you can look at the map, but what about when you're on the river and there's a log there that wasn't on the map or the water's a little bit higher? And it's in those moments that you need him to navigate you through these situations through his Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is gentle. He's the most understanding person in the universe. And then he says, I'm gentle. And then he says, I'm lowly. I'm lowly in heart. Humble. Synonyms are humble, downcast, undistinguished, and common. A lot of times, because we think of Jesus as so holy and so other, which he is, we tend to think that he's inaccessible. That just the way that any peasant would think about their king. That he lives there, he does his thing, but he's not associated with the common things that we everyday people deal with every day. He, he wouldn't understand. He, he's unapproachable. He's inaccessible. But Jesus is saying the exact opposite. He is accessible, and he is the most approachable person in the universe. And we think that we can't approach him about the things that we deal with, that we can't approach him with the, the sins that we're dealing with, with the struggle, but he's saying, no, come to me, all you who are la- weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When talking about being uh, lowly in Isaiah 52, 2 through 3, this is what it's talking about Jesus. Uh, it said, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by, by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised. He was held in low esteem. So Jesus was not prom king. He was just another, on the outside, just another guy, a blue-collar guy, had brothers and sisters, single, loved his mom, worked hard, but no one would have thought of him as anything else. And so for 30 years, Jesus began his ministry when he was 30 years old. He started doing these miracles, signs and wonders, when he's 30. So for 30 years, Jesus is doing nothing other but being acquainted with humanity. Getting to know the struggles that people deal with. Walking with us. Having the small talk. Helping a person whose wagon wheel had fallen off. You know, doing the things that everyday humans do. Jesus, for 30 years, his ministry has become acquainted with humanity, with the deepest parts of who we are as people. He is our high priest. This is who he is. He's trained in humanity. It says that in Luke that he, he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with man. He grew in favor with God, meaning he grew in relationship. He grew in grace is what the Bible says. But he also grew in favor with man. He, he was, I imagine he was in the town square talking with people being acquainted with people. I mean, he had brothers and sisters. Being an older brother, what that is. Cooking, cooking meals, working at, for his dad, the carpenter, doing everyday things, no, be, doing nothing other than being acquainted with our humanity. But behind the veil of his flesh, behind what you, if you could see beyond what was just on the outside, you would see divinity, you would see God. In, in John chapter one, it says that he was in the world 
And the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He was in the world, and the world made through him, but the world did not know him. And Colossians 2, it says that the fullness of the Godhead dwelled in bodily form in Jesus. Um, has, uh, uh, I was thinking about this. This reminds me of like the show Undercover Boss, in a way. Uh, I'm not comparing Jesus to a boss, don't hear that, but that you know, that sh- the premise of that show is that these bosses, they wear disguises and they come undercover and they go into their companies and they work the lowest tier job just to get to know the way that people are handling things and the struggles that they deal with, the finances they can't pay, the resources that they need in order to do their job better. And all he's doing is just getting to know them. And I like to think that's what Jesus did, that for 30 years, 33 years, he became the undercover boss in a sense, where he was wearing the disguise of his flesh walking with us, getting to be acquainted with the struggles that we deal with. And then once he ascended back into heaven, he is our high priest now who can help us with those things. And so it continues, what qualifies us for fellowship with Jesus? What qualifies? Who, who qualifies for fellowship with Jesus? Who is it? Who does he mention? All who are weary and heavy laden. All who labor and are heavy laden. Those are the ones that, can, that are qualified to have fellowship with Jesus. I think of, when I'm thinking about weary and heavy laden, I'm thinking about the Israelites when they were enslaved to Egypt, just weighed down with burdens hard to bear, having quotas to meet every day, feeling like they couldn't do it, weary and heavy laden. And it's those people, and they were exhausted physically, right? But what are we exhausted from? Our exhaustion may not be physical, like theirs was, but are we dealing with emotional exhaustion, spiritual, relational, and the sins we deal with feel like I just can't keep going in this, I'm weary and heavy laden by this thing I'm dealing with that no one knows about. It's it's those things that we can bring to him. He says, all you who labor and are heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. So you don't need to unburden yourself. You don't need to clean yourself up first. And this is exactly the way we think. As people, we think, I need to clean myself. What do we, what do, we do? When people, you know, growing up, uh, you know, you'd always have people over your house. And what does your mom do? Ah, get the house clean. And it's, it's you know, we, we, it's just by nature what we do. We want to clean ourselves up. But that very thing, what Jesus is saying is that that very thing that would disqualify you in any other area of life is the very thing that qualifies you to come to him. The very thing in any other, in your job, in relationships, people might disqualify you. That very thing is a thing that you can approach him with and qualifies you to meet with him. And we think the complete opposite. We think I need to clean myself and then come. Jesus said, no, bring what you have and then I can deal with it. Hebrews 4.16, so let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God And there we will receive his mercy and find grace to help us when we need it the most. When? When we we feel the best about ourselves? When we're willing to accept his love? No, when you need it the most. He's there. So Jesus is not arms folded. He's arms open in those moments. And Jesus not only meets us in our place of need, he lives in our place of need. I'm going to say that again. Jesus not only meets us in our place of need, he lives in our place of need. And so, because we don't think God has answers to our problems. 
But this is exactly, and again, we think the opposite. This is one of those dark thoughts we have about God. So Adam and Eve sin. They mess up. Sin and shame. Does God run and hide away and scared by their sin? What does he do? Adam, where are you? God comes near to the brokenhearted. He comes close. Jonah, he's dealing with anger. He had just preached to the Ninevites, and he didn't want them to repent. He didn't want them to come to God. But they did, and he's angry about it. And God comes close to him and gently corrects him in that situation. Or Elijah, who's on the run from Jezebel, and it says that he's dealing with depression and anxiety in this a cave. And what does God do? He comes close. It says he shows up in a whirlwind and all these different kind of things, but he whispers in a still small voice. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? God comes close. And then Gideon, who struggled with fear, he was hiding because he was terrified of the Midianites. It was in that moment that God came close. And so God is near to the brokenhearted. And I'm just, I hope we can hear this, because this is the message that impacted me, and I'm hoping it impacts somebody today, that the very thing that I thought would disqualify me from coming to Jesus is the very thing that qualifies me to come to him. And of course, like, we're not saying that we continue in it. No, like, that's what Paul dealt with in Romans. He's teaching the, through the gospel of Romans and, of course, writing it. And uh, it says that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That where, where sin increased, there, that there is grace for every sin. And so people might think, well, then we should just keep on sinning because God's grace. And then in the very next verse, he says, should we keep on sinning then? Of course not. How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? So that's not our nature anymore. But we need to understand that his grace is more, like that song, his mercy is more in those moments. His mercy is more. And it's his grace that not only forgives us, but changes us. But we have to meet him there. Because if we don't meet him there, he can't help us. We have to bring it to him. And how many situations, I think about my own life, how many situations I was dealing with Sin, shame, whatever, depression, and I, I ran away from God. And how God, who God could have been to me in those moments? Because you'll never know who he is as healer if you never are hurt. You'll never know who he is as savior if you never need forgiven. And if we don't come to him in those moments of struggle, we'll never know certain aspects of his heart that he, he longs to share with us. So we need to bring those things to him. Not run from him, but run to him. And so what's the promise for those who who trust him with their burden, rest. He gives us rest. He then promises that he will give us his rest as a gift. It's not something we earn. This is who Jesus is. He's tender, open, welcoming, accommodating, understanding, and willing. In the Christian life, we're, we're promised toil and hardship. We're promised that it's not going to be easy, that we're going to, like Jesus, behold, you'll have troubles in this world, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That we will have troubles, we will have things we deal with. But the quality that we share is that Jesus, who is gentle and lowly, will be with us in the midst of all of it. The, our gentle high priest will be helping us through it all. And so he's not necessarily saying rest for our bodies, but rest for our souls. So that the, the rest that we have is not something that is um, in a place or in resting our physical bodies. It rest is a continual state that we live in. So that while I'm working, I can actually rest. Because I'm with him, him who's gentle and lowly and cares for my soul. 
And so this is Jesus, who he is for all who call to him. All who say, Lord, take this weary and heavy burden that I'm carrying. And the, but the passage before this shows how Jesus, who Jesus is to the impenit, uh, impenitent, those who maybe don't want him, that don't want his forgiveness and are hard-hearted and don't want to receive anything he has. In Matthew 11, uh, 21 through 24, he says, Woe to you, Bethsaida, woe to you, Chorazin, for if the miracles done in, in Sodom and Gomorrah were done in you, they would have remained to this day. And so when it's saying that he is gentle and lowly, it doesn't mean mushy and soft. That he still is, he's still holy and he's still God. And because people think, well, if he's gentle and lowly, where is the justice? Where is the wrath? Because we tend to think that justice and love come from two opposing forces when they don't. They come from the same, they both are flowing from the same river. For example, uh, uh, probably about a year ago, I had someone who's... Uh, who I love very much, a friend, tell me about something terrible done to them. And I'm, I'm a, anger isn't necessarily something I struggle with very much, but I can tell you, I felt wrath in that moment. I was like, I'm, someone's gonna die. Like, I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna be doing prison ministry from the inside. That, like, in those moments, but of course, I, I, I you know, was able to calm myself down, but that's where wrath comes from. It's when you violate what you love. It's when love is violated. And so Jesus was never trying to, to spin off our understanding of God in a new direction. He wasn't trying to say, well, this is what Father is, but I'm this way. No, he's, he's, he's sharing the same story. He's writing the same story. It's a continuing narrative that he's painting for us. He simply provides of what God has been trying to convince his people of throughout the ages. And a good example of this that we'll look at real quick, uh, quick in the Old Testament is Lamentations 3.33. And the context of this is this is after... Um, the biggest traumatic event in Israel's history, where they've been led in exile to, to Babylon, and Jerusalem's been destroyed, and they're dealing with all these things and these frustrations and questions about who God is and, and why he did this. Why did God do this? Well, God was clear why he did that, because they wouldn't repent, but it says that, but in understanding this and understanding God's heart, this is what he says about the wrath that he inflicts. It says, for he does not afflict from his heart, or grieve the children of men. In other words, there's something in him, just like a father with their child, that he, yes, I need to, but I don't delight in it. He says that he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. He doesn't delight in it. It's not something that gives him pleasure. And I want to read you a quote. This is from a Puritan theologian, so it's going to sound like old-timey English. But if you can bear with me for a moment, this is really rich and really deep. And, and when talking about this verse, I think it can help us understand. So my brethren, though God is just, yet his mercy may in some respect said to be more natural to him than all aspects of justice itself than God does show. I mean vindictive justice. In, the, in these acts of justice, there is a satisfaction to an attribute in that he meets his and even with sinners. Yet there is a kind of violence done to himself in it. The scripture so expresses it. There is something in it that is contrary to him. I desire not the death of the sinner. That is, I delight not simply in it for pleasure's sake. When he exercises acts of justice, it is for a higher end. It is not simply for the thing itself. There's always something in his heart that is against it. But when he comes to show mercy, to manifest that is his nature and disposition, it is said that he does it with his whole heart. There is nothing in him at all that is against it. The act pleases him. There is no reluctance in him. Therefore, in Lamentations 3.33, when he speaks of punishing, he says, he does not do it from his heart, or from his heart, afflict nor grieve the children of men. But it, when it comes to showing mercy, 
He says he does it with his whole heart and his whole soul. And so the expression, as in Jeremiah 32, 41, and therefore acts of justice are called his strange work, in strange act, as in Isaiah 28, 21. But when he comes to show mercy, he rejoices over them to do them good with his whole heart and with his whole soul. So what he's saying is that when God, that mercy is more natural to God and that punishment is unnatural. Mercy is his natural work and, 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 and wrath is his strange work, as Isaiah puts it. Because some of us view God as brittle and unstable, ready to strike down at a moment's notice, cold and not easily moved. And I want us to be careful, of course, because I don't want to say that God is not any of the attributes that he is, because he is. And his attributes are not like one slice of the pie, he's one slice uh, rad, he's one slice this, he's one slice. No, he is. He is. He says, uh, when Moses comes to him, he says, tell them I am who I am. In other words, he just is. And it is his isness, I Google that, that's a word. It is his isness that makes him God. It's just part of, that is who he is. He is perfectly every attribute that he has. But the question that we're trying to answer is what's natural to him? What's he on the edge of his seat eager to do? What's he looking to do? What's he thinking about doing? What's he delight in doing? And that's mercy. That's the thing that he delights to do. So if you catch him off guard, if, you catch, if someone catches you off guard, what are they going to get out of you? For me, they'll probably get awkwardness or something like that. But if someone catches you off guard, what's going to come out of you? What, what the scripture is saying is that when we catch God off guard, what you're going to get is love, mercy, kindness. In uh, Exodus, when, when uh, Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And the Lord says, I will cause all my goodness to pass before you. And then it says that he, his goodness passes before him. And the first thing out of God's mouth in the Old Testament are very similar to the words Jesus says. Merciful and gracious. Merciful and gracious are the two words. And Jesus says the same thing. I am gentle and lowly. It's the same story. He does not inflict us willingly. He doesn't delight in it. So when we give, our, give the Lord our burdens, he gives us his yoke. And this shouldn't cause anxiety. This shouldn't cause anxiety for us because when we think of yoke, we automatically think of control. Because Jesus was regularly opposing those people who had laid on his people burdens hard to bear. He rebukes the, the Pharisees. He says, you put on people's shoulders heavy burdens hard to bear while you yourself don't lift a finger. So he's opposed to that. But the yoke of Jesus is completely different than any other yoke that we've known in our life. Because we've only known hard things, but Jesus yoke is easy. And when he's talking about giving us his yoke, he says his yoke is an easy yoke. And this word translated elsewhere is kind. So his yoke to us is kind. Not harsh, but kind. And the yoke was a, a wooden frame uh, used to harness together a pair of oxen. I think you know that, but so that they could pull some plow or do some load. Pull some load. But sometimes a younger ox needed to be taught the work and thus was paired with a, an animal of more experience. And this beautifully illustrates our relationship with Christ. As we walk by his side, sharing the yoke and burden, the load does not disappear, but is made lighter because we're walking with him. He isn't impatient with our learning and weakness. So he is the, the stronger ox that we're walking with, if I can say it that way, who is gentle and helping us and teaching us as we walk along with him in this life. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. And we don't have to bear those burdens on our own, but those are the things that we can bring to him. 
in those moments. And again, Dane Ortland uh, says this. Jesus is not saying life is free of pain of hardship. Free of pain or hardship. A yoke is a heavy crossbar laid on ox to force them to drag farming equipment through the field. Jesus is using a kind of irony, saying that the yoke laid on his disciples is a non-yoke, for it is a yoke of kindness. What helium does to a balloon, uh, Jesus' yoke does to his followers. And there's a song that I love uh, where it talks about come up, come up under the yoke of Jesus. It says, take a moment to remember who God is and who I am. There you go lifting my load again. No longer am I held by the yoke of this world. Come up under the yoke of Jesus. His yoke is easy and his burden is so light. So is this how we think of Jesus? When we think of him, do we have hard thoughts and dark thoughts? Or do we have the thoughts that he expresses about who he is toward gentle and lowly toward us? Um, it's been, uh, I'll finish with this. It's been four months since I uh, broke my ankle. Um, uh, long story short, don't go to trampoline parks. Um, uh, but there's one thing I learned through that whole process is that when one body, when one member of your body is hurting, it affects your whole body. So uh, my armpit started to hurt because I had to use crutches. So my armpit started to hurt. I started to get a little, gain a little weight because I'm sitting on the couch all the time. Um, it's frustrating getting up and down the stairs. Oh, shout out to my left ankle for holding it up while my right ankle was on sabbatical. So, <laughs> so my left leg is maybe a little bit stronger, you know? So it's these... So your whole body is affected by just one injury, by one thing. And uh, just to kind of uh, to give a story of what this looked like is uh, when I was in the midst of this, like May, I think, uh, right after I broke my ankle, you know, I have no weight bearing. I can't work. And so I'm staying over at my mom's house because uh, it's easier to get to the bathroom from there and everything. And... Um, and so I'm staying there, and, you know, after a couple of days, I'm like, you know what? I want to take a shower. I want to take a shower. Don't worry. I, I mean, no, I was showering about every two, three days, I'll be honest. But because it was such a, a hard thing to do. So you had to literally, well, I had my little scooter. So you get on my little scooter, go over to the bathroom, and then I have to somehow undress myself. Oh, yeah, you have to tie a, a, um, a trash bag around your ankle and then duct tape it real tight over your leg hair so that when you rip it off, it hurts. Um, go in there, somehow undress yourself. And my mom has a stand-up shower. And so, like, I need something to sit on because I can't wait bear. So I'm trying to figure out what to do. And she suggested giving me this stool, this plastic stool that was used for outside. And this is a plastic bottom of the flower, or the shower floor. And to be honest, the, the legs on this stool are about as durable as a plastic spoon. Like, it's, there's no way it's going to hold me up. But for some reason, I'm like, oh, whatever, I'll try it out. So I literally hop into the shower, hop into the shower. I get in there, and I don't know what I was thinking. I, I somehow was like, oh, well, this should work. So I sat down, about 10 seconds, and then crashes. I cut myself. I'm frustrated. I'm angry. And it was just in there for 10 seconds. So I was just wet enough. Like when you, when you forgot something out in your car, and it's like, oh, I forgot something in my car. Let me run out there. And it's not enough wet to, like, ruin your clothes, but not just enough to ruin your hair. Like that's how wet I was. And so I was just frustrated, and I was like, oh, forget it, I'm not, so. But that's just an example of how one member of your body being affected can affect your whole life. It can affect your whole life. And so, 
Um, but, you know, in that whole process, not once, you know, I've been committed to getting my ankle better. The moment I broke it, all of my focus went to my ankle. All of my focus toward getting it better. So, okay, what do we need to do? What do we need? Do I need surgery? Do I need this? And so we got surgery. And then get the surgery. Okay, now we got to start physical therapy. And not once did I ever think in the midst of all the pain and struggle that my ankle was dealing with that I needed to cut it off. I was like, you know what? Just cut it off, doc. I don't need it. I need to lose 10 pounds anyway. Just cut it off. I don't need it. And so not once did that ever cross my mind when talking about my ankle. I was committed to getting it better in any way possible, and all my attention was focused on that. But here's the question. Is that do we think that we, having physical ailments and we're committed to getting them better, that Jesus is any less committed to getting us better as members of his body? It says in Ephesians 5, no one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church, and we are members of his body. So in this, it, what it's saying is that when we feel pain, Jesus feels pain. When we are dealing with something, he's dealing with it. It's not something exclusive from him. It's something that he himself is dealing with. So if we're dealing with those burdens, dealing with those pains, it's something that he himself is feeling. He is able to identify with our pain. And not one, just as not once I was not committed to getting my ankle better, Jesus, for those who come to him, he, has, he is as and more committed to you. If you and, and, and just as my ankle was in pain and all of my attention went toward my ankle, my, I didn't say and start ignoring it and be like, oh, I don't know what's going on. In the same way, Jesus, when we experience pain, his focus, his gaze comes toward us as members of his body and saying, what's going on? What's wrong? How can we mend this? How can we get it better? And just as I had never thought about cutting off my ankle, that thought doesn't cross Jesus' mind when we're dealing with pain and struggles. It says in John chapter 6, all the Father gives me will come to me, and all who comes to me I will never cast out. I will never cut off. And so this is the promise that we have, that we're not in the same way that we care for our body. Christ cares for us. And the very thing that would disqualify us anywhere else is the very thing that qualifies to come to us. Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. But just like the, the leper in the Gospel of Matthew said, he, he comes to Jesus, he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. In other words, we don't doubt God's ability. We doubt his willingness. We don't doubt his power. We doubt his willingness. And we deal with that same temptation, that same thing that was given to Eve in the garden, that you cannot trust his heart, that he is not willing, that his heart is not for you, and it is not good. But that is what Jesus wants us to understand today, is that he is willing he is gentle and lowly, not for perfect people, but for people like you and me who have things that we deal with. And so going forward, what I am trying to do and I would ask you to do is that when you deal with something, whether it be sin or frustration or something else, not to take that and hide it from God, but to bring it to him and let you meet him with, meet you in that, in that sin and let him be a comforter to you. Let him be a healer. Let him be a friend in those situations when you don't feel lovely. And come to him in those moments. So let's pray. Lord, Jesus, we thank you for your, your gentle and lowly heart. We thank you, Lord, for your gentle and lowly heart. 
Holy Spirit, I ask that you would just reveal to each one of us, maybe when we're, where we're hiding from you, and uh, if we're hiding a sin from you, or hiding a struggle, hiding something, that we would not just try to clean ourselves up and then come to you, but that we would come to you in the midst of those things, and to let you be our helper, and to let you be our friend, and to love us when we don't feel lovely. Jesus, help us to do this because this isn't easy. This isn't something that comes natural to us. We all want to hide and make sure we do better on our own. But Lord, I ask that you would help us to be humble and to come boldly to your throne of grace to receive grace and mercy in time of need. Holy Spirit, gentle and lowly Holy Spirit, whisper to our hearts. Bring out those things that we need to bring to you. And we thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.